how is the end informing and shaping how you live right now? Uh, For Megan and our family, for me and Megan and our family, this is something that we think about almost every day. Uh, Sadly, our time here at CHBC in D.C. is coming to an end. Uh, Lord willing, in January, a month from now, we will move to Fort Worth, Texas, uh, with the hopes of planting Trinity River Baptist Church. And there's no doubt about it, we are excited and thrilled to do this new work. Uh, But we're also deeply saddened to leave. So Megan and I have a conversation almost daily How do we make the most of our final days at our church and in the city? The end has created a sense of urgency in our own heart and mind for how we're going to spend the rest of our time here. But what about for you? How is the end shaping how you live right now? Maybe you're a parent of a high school senior and graduation is quickly approaching. Maybe you are a senior in college and graduation is quickly approaching. Or maybe you're like me. Your time in D.C. is coming to an end. How is the end shaping and affecting how you live right now? The Apostle Peter in the first century wanted the end to be firmly fixed in the lives of believers. Specifically in his second letter. Not the end of college or a job, but the end of all things where Christ will return and judge the living and the dead. Though Peter and the apostles had told these believers about this coming, there was a group of men who had snuck in and lied and were deceptive and said, you know what, the apostles were following cleverly devised myths when they proclaimed to you the coming of our Lord or the coming of Jesus Christ. They were seeking to manipulate you and deceive you so they could kind of control your behavior. Uh, These false teachers not only said that Christ had not come back, but they were saying that Christ would not come back. They distorted, or were seeking to distort, their view of the end. And Peter writes this letter to these believers to say, We did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we followed divine truth that we received from God himself. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and grab them and turn to 2 Peter. Second Peter. If you have a red Bible that is beside you, Second uh, Peter can be found on page 1018. Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to cover all of chapter 1 uh, this morning. We'll start reading in verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 21. This is what the Apostle Peter writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious And very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness. 
and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brother, brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A few things before we kind of jump into this letter. Uh, we see at the very beginning of Second Peter 1 that, that Peter is the author. Now don't be thrown off, it says Simeon Peter. Uh, this was a common spelling for Simon in pa- Palestine. Uh, you could go to Acts 15, verses 13 and 14, and see that the Apostle James refers to Peter as Simeon. Uh, Peter is the author. He is the one who would betray Christ, as we read in the Gospels, and be restored uh, by Christ. Peter is writing to the same believers that he wrote to in 1 Peter. We see this in 2 Peter 3.1. You look there now. He says, now this, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. You can flip over to your Bible to see specifically who that is. Uh, these are the believers that were dispersed among Asia Minor and beyond because of persecution. Uh, these are believers in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Uh, those are who he's writing to. And I think the main reason why Peter is writing this second letter can be found in 2 Peter 3.14. 2 Peter 3.14 this is what Peter says to them there. Kind of gives you a sense of what the whole purpose of this letter is. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, what are the these? The end of all things. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter wrote to these believers who were facing serious opposition to continue to be diligent and walk in godliness as they wait for Christ in his second coming. And at the heart of Peter's letter in our passage today is Peter is simply trying to answer one question. Why should you make every effort to grow in godliness? 
At the heart of this passage this morning and the whole book of 2 Peter is this question. Why should you make every effort to grow in godliness? I think Peter gives us two reasons in our passage this morning. The first is this. Christ's work is effective. Christ's work is effective. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 11. And the next thing, the next reason why we should grow in godliness is this. God's word is certain. God's word is certain. We see this in verses 12 through 21. So two reasons why we should seek to grow in godliness and make every effort. Christ's word is effect, work is effective and God's word is certain. Let's look at the first point now. We'll see this in verses 1 through 11. I just want to read the first two verses and we'll just kind of walk through it slowly together. This is Peter. He does the introduction. He says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God our Savior and Jesus Christ. Here... When Peter says that for those who obtained, he doesn't have in mind what some of you did on Black Friday. uh, That you went out and you got something that you wanted. This obtaining was a gift. They were the recipients of a gift. This faith was given to them by Christ. And what does he mean here as he says, uh, the equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, he wants you to know there's, there's no variation or degrees of righteousness in Christ. So if you are male, female, young, old, slave, free, if you are in Christ, you have the same exact righteousness because it's Christ's righteousness. There is no caste system in Christ. His righteousness is fixed, not based on our status and what we accomplish in this life, but based on Christ's status and what he has accomplished. If you are in Christ, you have the same exact righteousness as Christ himself. He then, in traditional fashion, in verse 2, he gives them this prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Then Peter begins to move on. I think there's kind of two things he's doing in the midst of Christ's work here. One, in verses 3 and 4, he's telling about what Christ has done. And then in verses 5 through 11, he's telling us about what we should do in response to what Christ has done. So verses 3 and 4, this is, let's look at Christ's work now. He says this in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Here in verse 3, I want you to get this. Peter is saying that Jesus Christ, who is equal with the Father, has in his divine power graciously acted in the lives of believers and saved us, And in saving us, he's given us all that we need to live a godly life. Simply put, your salvation was a divine act with a divine purpose. That's what Peter is saying. Christ has granted this to you, that your justification, your sanctification, your glorification are gracious gracious gifts from God to us in Christ. When Peter says all things that pertain to life and godliness, I don't think Peter has in mind that once you become a Christian, all your earthly trials and afflictions go away. It kind of reminds me of one of my favorite movies as a kid. It was called Blank Check. 
I don't know if you're a child of the 90s, but it was just like one of the greatest movies of all time. There's this kid who has a bike. He's riding around a bank. Some criminal just kind of runs over him who's running from the police. And the guy just hands him a blank check to like, hey, here, pay for your bike. And the kid is just a genius. So he goes and buys a mansion and everything that he wants, right? Well, when we receive this faith, Jesus writes us a blank check, not for our earthly needs, but for our eternal needs. That's what Peter has in mind. Christ Jesus has granted us all that we need to be made right with God and then to live a life pleasing to God. That's what he's saying. When did we get this grant from Jesus? When did this take place? Well, you can see that down, continuing on in verse 3. He's granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So Peter is saying at the moment of your conversion... Uh, When the Holy Spirit called you and drew you to himself, when you placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, in that moment, Christ has now given you all that you need to be made right with God and live a life pleasing to God. What a generous gift from God himself to us. In that moment, Christ's righteousness was applied to us and we were given a new heart to love and obey Christ in all things. Notice what Peter says that Christ calls us to or by. Look down your Bible. He says he calls us to and by what? His own glory and excellence. Glory here doesn't mean honor, but means divine splendor. And the word excellence can be translated virtue, as we'll see later, or goodness. So at the moment of your salvation, Christ in his goodness opens your eyes to see his goodness. That's what happened when you got saved. Christ removed the veil so that you could see how good and wonderful he actually is. And this sight is an irresistible sight. That those who see it, they cannot turn from it. This sight is where uh, the the sick find healing. where, Where the wounded find rest and relief. And where the sinners find forgiveness. Can you think this morning of any more glorious sight to behold than the goodness of Jesus, our Savior? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's incredible the fact that when we come to Christ, we see we're sinners. That's a significant thing. And it's incredible the fact that we not only see we're sinners, but we can have our sins forgiven. That's a miracle and marvelous. But to me, the most amazing reality of the gospel is that you and I get Christ. What a, what a greater gift Then Jesus Christ, who is infinite in goodness, the one who made you and who you were made for, you get him. That's the glory. That's the the wonder. That is the marvel of the gospel, is that undeserving sinners get an all-sufficient Savior. That's what Christ is doing in this moment of our conversion. He opens our eyes to see him and to love him and to seek after him. If you're not a Christian here today, we're so thankful that you're here. It's impressive that you would come to church on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Well done. A lot of the Baptists haven't even done that today. (laughs) But I'm curious, as you're thinking about Christianity, what do you think we're trying to offer you this morning? What do you think we're trying to convince you of? I think for a lot of people who don't know Jesus, they think that we're here to try to convince and control your behavior. And that really isn't it at all. We are trying to give you the greatest thing ever. That is Jesus Christ. There is none good. No, not one. Except there is one. Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. He is so good that he became sin. Though he was sinless, 
to make us right with God. He needs nothing and no one, and yet he gave himself for us to draw us near to God. And so today, if you will turn from your sins and look to Jesus, you will begin to see how good he is. I imagine maybe even some among us today who the Lord might be calling to himself. Trust in Christ. Turn to him. There's no greater gift in this life than knowing Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, we have pastors at the door. There'll be members in the pews. We'd love to talk with you after about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I mentioned earlier that our salvation was a divine act for a divine purpose. What was that divine purpose? Well, we see it in verse 4. Peter writes this, by which, talking about Christ's own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Some of these promises in particular are the promises of the gospel and all that it entails. So that through the promises of the gospel that we would become partakers of what? His divine nature. So the divine purpose in our salvation is that we would be made like him. To be partakers of the divine nature means that we will share in his moral purity and excellence. We don't become little gods when we become Christians. And we don't share in God's essence. But it does mean we share in his purity and his holiness and even parts of his glory. In the words of John Calvin, I think it's helpful. He says, when divested of all the vices of the flesh... We shall be partakers of divine and blessed immortality and glory. So as it to be, as it were, one with God, as far as our capacities will allow. That's what's happening when you become a Christian. You are beginning to partake in the divine nature, share in the glory of Jesus. He is transforming you. As Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Because we are in Christ, we are being made perfect and we will be perfected when Christ returns. There's coming a time when our struggling and striving with sin will cease. And we know we are being perfected because Peter tells us that we have escaped. Look there in verse 4. We have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That is an evidence of us. If we're not dead to our sins, if we're not enslaved to our sins any longer, that is an evidence that God is perfecting us in this life and we will be made perfect in the end. Peter here tells us that our salvation is granted to us and fixed by Christ. And more specifically, not only is it fixed by Christ, this salvation that Christ has granted us is effective to sanctify us as well. What Christ is doing in our life isn't just that one moment at conversion. It is continuous throughout our lives until we are in the presence of him. Christ is working to make us holy and will make us completely holy and finally holy in the end. So here we've looked at what Christ has done in verses 3 and 4. Now Peter transitions to what our response should be. Look at verse 5 through 7 here. This is Peter saying, here's how we as believers should respond to all that Christ has granted us. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, because of what Christ has done, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with goodness, and goodness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Peter says, because we have received so great a salvation, 
And because we have been granted all that we need to live a godly life, we should make every effort, every effort to live a life that shows we have been united with Christ. That's on us. That's what our response should be. Not only is Christ's work ineffective in saving us in the moment, it brings about not only our right standing before God, but our right living in this life. Christ granting us all that we need brings about a right standing before God and our right living in this life. And Peter simply here is calling believers to live what they already are before God. Saying live out what you already are, righteous. That's how we are before the Lord. Because it's fixed because of what Christ has done. Here in this portion, we see both God's sovereignty over our salvation and our responsibility to live out our salvation. That's what's happening here. There's a reason Jesus said he would ever come after me, must deny himself, carry his cross, and follow me. Jesus is the one who calls, but we must follow. We're held accountable to do that. I think this is the reason why Peter says, make every effort. Following Jesus is not an effortless task. Being sanctified is both wonderful and difficult all at the same time. It is challenging. It is difficult. It is arduous. And it would be super easy if we were sanctified via, via injection. Right? How great would that be? You show up on Sunday, Dr. Mark and Dr. Bobby give you a little jab of sanctification, you're good for that week. How great would that be? Uh, but we're not sanctified via injection, but via crucifixion. Christ said anyone would come after me, he must carry his cross. Deny himself, carry his cross, and follow me. I don't know if you know this yet or not, but your sin will not go without a fight. Satan does not want to see you sanctified. The world does not want to see you sanctified. It is a difficult and arduous task, and we must make every effort to live out what Christ has already purchased for us. This is a reason why J.C. Ryle would write to believers, there are no spiritual gains without pains. Brothers and sisters, we need to make every effort because this is what Christ has saved us for. Saved us to do is to live a life of godliness and faithful unto him while we wait on him. Christ carried his cross to Calvary for us and we get to carry our cross to heaven for him. So the next time you are tempted and sin, to, to think something, to look at something, to say, or, or do something, you need to have this phrase in your mind, make every effort. Christ made every effort for me, now I get to make every effort for him. So church, how are you doing in making every effort? How would you answer that question for yourself today? How are you making every effort? What has God given us to make every effort? Well, the simple answer is this, God's given us the means of grace. If you're at church this morning, praise God. You are currently making every effort to walk in holiness. Praise the Lord. It's a really simple and low-hanging fruit. Going to church is a wonderful way to continue to grow in godliness and make every effort. Take advantage of the means of grace of reading the Bible and praying and gathering with the church on Sunday and singing and holding believers accountable. Have you ever noticed that the more you take advantage of the means of grace, the more evidence of God's grace you have in your life? It's kind of a simple formula. It's not perfect. But the more we take advantage of these means that God's given us, the more that we grow in godliness and see grace in our own lives. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to consider your life today and how you're making every effort. There's some of us among us today that we've been apathetic spiritually. 
We've been leaning on the fact that we're members of CHBC. Leaning on the fact that we've been following Jesus for a long time. And some of us need to, to rekindle what we sang earlier. Jesus, keep me near the cross. They're a precious fountain. We need to run to Jesus. Make every effort. Because this run has an end date. There's a time when we will no longer strive or run. But we may be made perfect in his sight. Peter then, as we continue to move on, he says, Peter, Peter gives a, a list of qualities that are already ours in Christ, but we must make every effort to grow in them. And then he uses this word about your faith, that you should supplement, which is kind of the main verb here, an imperative. He's saying, you must do this. Make every effort to supplement. What in the world does that mean? I think Peter means supply, furnish. It's kind of like, you know, you have a Christmas tree stand. You put it in, and then you set it up, and it kind of faith holds it up, and then you're adding the other things all at once. But really, it's not really that at all because you already have all these things in Christ. He's saying make every effort so that your faith is furnished with these things. The confidence that we have, we are the Lord's, is these are evident in our life, no matter how dim they may be. And so he lists out a few qualifications, and here is a list. I want to say this up front. I don't think there's any significance about the ordering of this list. The only thing I think is significant is it starts with faith and it ends with love. And you're like, you, you could argue that this whole list is faith working through love. That's exactly what's happening here. Our relationship with God begins by faith. And the ultimate aim of our walk with the Lord is to love God and love our neighbor. Peter in this list is simply describing the entire shape of the Christian life. That's what he's talking about here. So let's quickly walk through all eight virtues. All eight virtues. Faith, as he says, is what brings us into fellowship with God and the foundation for all the other qualities in our lives. Without faith... None of these things can be evident. Virtue, virtue is moral excellence. Moral excellence. Christ is morally perfect and pure, so we should seek to be also. Knowledge, we are to continue to grow in the knowledge of who God is and his word. Who he is, why he saved us, and how we're to live in his world. Don't be apathetic in knowledge. Continue to be zealous in knowledge. Self-control means uh, self-restraint. Knowing God should produce an ability in our lives to put sin to death and to walk into holiness. And, and what, is self, what is knowledge without self-control? It's, it's useless. And Peter lists steadfastness. Steadfastness simply means endurance. What is self-control without endurance? And Jesus tells us that those who are truly is, his will endure to the very end. Then he lists godliness. And really, you could just say this whole list, sum it up with godliness. Continue to grow in godliness. That is kind of devotion, inward and outward devotion towards God. This is something we should make every effort to grow in. The next is brotherly affection. This could be uh, love for all people, but I think specifically he has in mind love for the church. Continue to make every effort to grow in your love for the church. Jesus says this in John thirteen thirty five. By this, by what? Your love, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. How do you think we're doing loving one another right now as a church? You think it's evident to those around us that we are Christ's disciples by our love for one another? And then he ends with love. That we should be eager and ambitious to continue to grow in our love and affection for God. Because God has loved us. God's love for us produces God's love in us. That's what happens as believers. So before there was ever a nine marks of a healthy church, Peter had eight marks of a mature and healthy Christian. That's what this is right here. These are eight marks of a healthy and a maturing Christian. All these qualities and characteristics we have already received in Christ. 
We're not waiting to download the next thing in the list. These are ours, and we should make every effort to grow in these areas. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, maybe take this list home this week. Pray through one or two a day. Try to evaluate how are you doing in these areas. What ways do you need to grow? Maybe invite another believer that you trust to kind of give you an inventory as well to say, here's how I'm doing. Now you can speak into my life. Invite people in your life so that you can make every effort to continue to grow in godliness. The next thing I want you to notice is this. Next, what Peter says about those who have these qualities versus those who don't have these qualities. We see this in verse 8 and 9. He says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter says that those who are marked by these qualities, they are doing exactly what Christ saved them for. And those who aren't are either confused or deceived. Peter here is beginning to address the false teachers of his day. We'll talk about that next week in chapter 2, but you can specifically see that there were people among uh, these believers who were coming in saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, but their life had no evidence of it at all. You can see kind of a, a good summary, a description in 2 Peter 2, 19 through 20. This is what Peter writes of these false teachers, those who claim to be believers but have no fruit. He says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter is saying here that those who are Christians will live like it. And those who claim to be Christians and don't live like that are confused or deceived. That's what Peter's communicating here. And just make very clear, Christ's work is effective and it will evidence itself out in our lives through putting sin to death and walking in holiness. We'll be imperfect in this effort. We'll have good days and we'll have bad days. But to be clear, a Christian may be marked by struggling with sin, but a Christian can never be marked by being enslaved to sin. Struggling means there's life in you and that you're seeking to put it to death, no matter how great the struggle might be. Enslaved means that you have given up, that sin is now your master, and you follow it. Something we need to be reminded of as we consider this letter. Because of this, Peter says, Therefore, because those who are Christians live like Christians, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and elections. What he says here in verse 10 and 11. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to confirm our calling and election? He says, be diligent. This is the second imperative he gives in this, this letter. Be diligent, be zealous to make every effort. But how do we, as fallen and fickle people, learn what God has done something in eternity past that is election and what he's doing in the world now, which is calling? How do we know this? And I imagine there's probably dozens of people in this room who you will know the answer to this because you're here struggling with assurance. You want to follow Jesus, but there's just not much evidence you feel like in your own heart in your own mind. So what is the answer to this question? Well, I think Peter's answer is this. We confirm our calling and election by practicing these qualities. We confirm our calling and election by practicing these qualities. I think this is more evident when you look at the, the second half of verse 10. Look there now. He, sees, he says this, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Fall from what? 
fall from following Jesus. Fall away from trusting in him. Turn from Christ. Apostatize. You can't fall from something you did not have or someplace you've never been. So for those who are here struggling with assurance, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I believe in his life, death, and resurrection, and I'm trusting in his finished work, I'm following after him, I'm seeking to live a life pleasing to him, and yeah, I see some of these uh, qualities in my life that may be imperfect at times, brother and sister, be encouraged. That is evidence of God's spirit within you and God's mercy and grace towards you. That's something we should rejoice in. And that's what our job is as a church, is to affirm these qualities in each other's lives. Because these are evidences that we are the Lord's. Obedience doesn't save us, but it does say something about us and about who we follow and what we do. As one commentator put it, objective obedience is the foundation for subjective assurance. Us following after Jesus and trusting him is affirmation that we are the Lord's. So if that's you today, keep going, keep trusting, keep walking in faith and obedience. Not only does Peter say that these qualities uh, in our lives give us assurance, in verse 11 he tells us they also assure us and guarantee our place in Christ's eternal kingdom. He's saying that those who practice these things have great assurance that Christ's kingdom is theirs. And that their labor is not in vain. That the striving and the running against sin, the fighting against sin will cease. And one day we will behold our Savior in the presence of Christ. We will see him in the presence of sin will have no place in us. For those among us who are kids, kids and teenagers, have you ever asked yourself the question, how do I become a Christian? What do I have to do to be a Christian? That was something I wrestled with forever. Unfortunately, I grew up in a church that put the assurance on me and what I did in the moment of when I prayed this prayer. That is not at all biblical. So here's how you become a Christian. Realize you're a sinner and put your faith in Jesus. Saying the only way I can be made right with God is through trusting in Jesus. Believe in him. Believe in what he's done and what he will do. And the way that you'll know your belief is genuine is when your parents start to tell you to do something you don't want to do. And you begin to go, you know what, I don't want to do this. But I know that doing this honors Christ. So I'm going to follow what he tells me to do. Or the next time your friend or sibling sins against you, instead of being angry and responding in anger, saying, I'm going to forgive you because I've received forgiveness in Christ. And the next time you sin, instead of lying about it or hiding it, bring it to the light. Bring it to Jesus because you know that you have received all that you need for life and godliness in him. If you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus as a Christian, you can talk to your parents. And parents, if you don't feel greatly comfortable talking to your children about it, meet with one of the pastors. We would love to talk to you and your kids about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Why should we make every effort to grow in godliness? Because Christ's work is effective. It is producing fruit in our lives. We are working alongside him as he works in us. And that fruit assures us that we are the Lord's. Peter gives us another reason why we should grow in godliness. Because God's word is certain. God's word is certain. We'll see this in verses 12 through 21. First, we're going to look at verses 12 through 15. Look there now. Peter says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. 
First here, Peter reminds them of the goodness of reminders, the kindness of reminders. Peter reminds them and affirms them that what they know and what he's telling them now is not brand new information. Like he's already told them they have the truth. They're establishing it. And he's saying, as long as I'm in this body or literally in this tent before Christ takes me, as he's told me that he would, I will continue to remind these things. So don't doubt them. Don't turn from them. You have all that you need, regardless of what those around you say. Uh, This sounds very similar to Jude 3, where Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Basically what Peter's saying, you already have what you need. Don't doubt the instructions. Christ has already given them to you. It's like this, I, I am notoriously bad with instructions. I love to put things together just without instructions. I never feel more afflicted and sanctified than when I'm putting a piece of Ikea furniture together. Part of me is convinced that when Paul prayed that the Lord would remove the thorn from his flesh, he was putting an Ikea couch together. Like, Lord, remove this. This is burdensome. And part of the issue is I'm convinced in my mind for whatever reason that some engineer has left out some instructions or some supply that I need to complete the task. That was kind of a sick joke on me, right? But the problem ordinarily is not with the instructions, The problem ordinarily is my belief that the instructions have given me everything that I need to finish the task. And brothers and sisters, the problems we face in this life will never arise because God has not given us all that we need in his word. He has spoken and he's given us all that we need to know him, to be made right with him, and to live a life pleasing to him. And one of the things that pastoring has taught me is that more times than not, Christians know the truth. They just need to be encouraged in it. More times than not, none of us need to be scolded or beat up for our mistakes. So let's all make every effort to encourage one another in the truth that we already know. It would be a blessing to each one of us as we make that effort. It would be good for us to continue to rejoice and remember all that God has given us in his word. So Peter says, I'm going to remind you because it's really good and it's actually true. There's nothing else to tell you about. Next, starting in verse 16, Peter tells them that they should have great confidence, or the reason why he has great confidence, and reminding them of the truth. See this in verse 16. His great confidence to remind them in verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter has great confidence to remind them because the apostles weren't deceived when they proclaimed the truth about Christ coming in power. They were not following made-up stories, but they were proclaiming the truth about Christ's coming. Now, which coming is Peter talking about here? His first or his second coming? Well, I think in particular, Peter has in mind Christ's second coming. I think the Greek makes that clear, but also I think if you read the entirety of the letter, you'll see that Peter is addressing what some of the false teachers were saying about Christ's coming. We see this in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. There Peter writes, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, men had crept in among these believers and were beginning to try to alter or distort their trust in the fact that Christ would come again. And so for the rest of the time on in verses 16 through 21, Peter lays out why Christ's second coming is a certainty, while it will take place. 
And the first argument that Peter makes in verse 16 through 18 is he was an eyewitness of Christ's transfiguration. Just as we read about earlier with grace. See that in Mark 8. We're about to turn there here in a moment. We see this in verse 16 through 19. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw the, and heard Christ transformed and they heard the Father's voice from heaven, seeing him being glorified. Now the interesting thing is this. Why is the transfiguration justification for Christ's second coming? Why is Peter going there? Let's flip over there now to Mark chapter 8. Just go ahead and flip in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Where Grace read earlier. And most likely Mark is Peter's account. So since we're in Second Peter, we'll go there. So if you look up earlier, before the transfiguration, which is in Mark 9. In Mark 8, 31 through 39, 38, excuse me. Jesus is teaching them what it means to be a follower. Must Deny themselves, carry their cross, and follow him. And then in verse 38, he says this. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And then he goes on and he says something that has confused me until this week. He said, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after he's come with power. Well, who in the world would see the coming of God after he's come in power? Well, I think if you read, keep reading, it says this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. So who would those, who would be those people who would see Christ coming in power before they tasted death? was Peter, James, and John right here on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was transformed. He was glorious. His his clothes were so white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And always loves this. Peter just starts talking because it's awkward in this moment. He's like, oh, we should build some tents right now. This is a good thing. But he says he was terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. They heard a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. So at the transfiguration, we're seeing that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. At the transfiguration, we're seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But also in the transfiguration, Jesus is teaching us something about what it means that he will come in the glory of his father. And in this moment, I think this is really helpful to understand In this moment when he's glorified, this is not something brand new for Jesus. Like in this moment, like he's finally been glorified. No, it's more of a moment of revelation. Revealing who Christ has been for all eternity. Him sharing with the glory of his father has been something that he has had for eternity. And it's something that will be manifested on the last day. So Peter's saying, look, I I know these false teachers are saying this about Jesus, but we've seen him glorified, and that's a certainty that he will come and judge the living and the dead. Judge the living and the dead. So Peter talks about his Christ's transfiguration, his affirmation that Christ will come again. They've seen him glorified. And then he goes on to begin to talk about the prophetic word of God. So not only is it transfiguration, justification that we know Christ will come again, but the prophetic word. Peter says, if you don't believe me, we'll look at the prophetic word. It affirms everything that we saw. We've we've not been deceived. Christ has 
was transfigured before us. And apparently these false teachers were saying the Old Testament was not reliable. And he's saying, no, it is absolutely reliable. God has spoken and God has confirmed all that he's doing in world history and then through his son. One author, I think, helpfully says this, that the transfiguration is God's own exegesis of the prophetic word. So God, at the transfiguration, is confirming all that he has been saying throughout centuries about what he's doing in the world. That all things would be united to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And Peter tells them here in verse 19 that they should pay attention to this word. He says this, you can kind of flip over back to your Bible there to to 2 Peter. He says... He heard that the voice, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, is verse 17. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with them on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. I think he's just saying this affirms what we saw and experienced. Then he says, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So how long should believers pay attention to God's word? Till they're transformed into the image of Christ. So brothers and sisters, what has your attention right now? What has been on your mind more than anything else this past week? Maybe what's happening on the hill. Maybe it's the state of the economy. Maybe it's something else in your life. I would encourage you, just like Peter encouraged these believers, pay attention to that which would do you spiritual good now and for all eternity. The word of God. Continue to look to it and continue to trust it. Build your life around God's word. Why is God's word a trustworthy foundation? Well, Peter tells us on in verse 21, or verses 20 through 21. He says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Regardless of what these false teachers say, God's word was not man's invention. And here, when Peter says no prophecy of Scripture comes about from man's own interpretation, I don't think Peter has in mind man's ability to read the Bible and understand the Bible. It could be. But I think more specifically, he has in mind how we actually got the Bible. He's saying that no prophecy of Scripture comes from man's own will, their own ability. It comes from something greater than man, God himself. See, when God gave us his word, it's not like the telephone game when you play as a kid. He's like spoke to one and he got a hope that it makes it through like the 27 children. And you know, those people who kind of intentionally changed the word like I was as a kid, like, you know, he hopes that it makes it through. Yeah, that, that's not at all how it happened. God has inspired men in their own abilities, their own thoughts, their own styles to write his word in the exact way that he wanted it written. Inspired by God, written by men. And just think about this, the incredible nature of the Bible. I mean, this was written over a span of over 1600 years by almost 40 authors, by, on three different continents. And the message has not changed. The message of the Bible is unified and it is clear. If it was going to be messed up, it could have been done. But it couldn't be done. Why? Because God was the one inspiring it. God has spoken. And what he wanted to be said has been said. And we can trust it. You'll find no clearer teaching in the Bible for how we got the Bible than here in Second Peter 1. Scripture was birthed out by the Spirit of God, carrying men along with their own personalities and ability, writing down exactly what God wanted them to say in their own unique way. God inspired it exactly how he wanted it written. Men moved by the Spirit of God. God's word came forth. 
and it has accomplished its purpose. So church, this is a basic encouragement. But when the world feels chaotic around you, continue to trust God's word. When temptation feels heavier and seems heavier than it's ever been, continue to trust God's word. And as long as God gives you life and breath, continue to trust God's word. It will surely do you good. Sometimes the most basic things are the things we need to be most reminded of. God's word is true. God's word is doing us good. And it will sustain us to the very end. These false teachers crept in, trying to distort people's understanding of Christ's return. They mock Peter's eyewitness account, and they seek to undermine the word of God. But Peter reminds them, we saw Christ glorified, and we have God's word, which has confirmed what we saw. Peter instructs these believers to continue to hold fast to what they heard about Christ and what they read in God's word. For they did not follow cleverly devised myths, but divine truth revealed by God himself. So why should you make every effort to grow in godliness? Because Christ's work is effective. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to grow in godliness, not only because Christ's work is effective, but because God's word is certain. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word remains forever. What we need to know about God has already been given to us in his word. We simply need to trust it. And by seeing the effective work of Christ in our own lives and trusting God's word, we will continue to be godly not only now, but for all eternity. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we come before you only in the name of Jesus, who has granted us all that we need to be made right with you and to live a life pleasing to you. Father, we thank you for your word that is trustworthy to build our life upon, that it will not return empty or void. Father, would you make us a people who continue to trust you in your word until our dying breath? Father, we pray that you would continue to, to build us up through it. Fill us with your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.